Today's reading is from Ruth, chapter 1, reading verses 1 to 17. Elimelech's family goes to Moab. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to live in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of the wife, Naomi, and the name of the two sons were Marlon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died and she was left with her two sons. These two took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. When they lived there for about 10 years, both Marlon and Chilion also died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Naomi and her Moabite's daughters-in-law. Then she started to return with her daughters-in-law from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had considered his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she had been living, she and her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to go back to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt kindly with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find security, each of you, in the house of your husband. Then she kissed them, and they wept aloud. They said to her, No. We will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Do I still have sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go on your way, for I am too old to have a husband. Even if I thought there was hope for me, even after I should have a husband and bear sons, would you then wait until they were grown? Would you then refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, it has been far more bitter for me than for you, because the hand of the Lord has turned against me. Then they wept aloud again. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. So she said, look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not press me to leave you, to turn back from following you. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people should be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do thus for me, and more as well, 
even if death parts me from you. Thanks be to God for his word. It's slightly weird hearing something you've written being sung by the congregation. I, I blame Helen for that song. Uh, Helen said to me, why don't we have a song that picks up on uh, the vision statement we've just worked at for this church, you know, provoking faith in the heart of London. And so the words emerged uh, from somewhere in the back of my head and the tune emerged from Alexandra's musical genius and then we end up with a, with a lovely hymn that I hope uh, helps capture something of who we are as a church. And my goodness me, don't we need it this week. Uh, I'm slightly uh, nervous, really, standing up to say anything in public after a week like this. Uh, it, it feels a bit more like a week of, of listening than speaking. Um, the events that began with the horrific terrorist atrocity committed against Jewish people by Hamas and the events that have followed and are following uh, even as we speak. I've been listening to Jewish friends who have been talking of their pain and their horror um, and their fear. And I've been listening to Palestinian friends talking of their pain and their horror and their fear. We're not in a good place. So we're going to turn to scripture and we'll see what an ancient story from the Hebrew Bible might say to us in this time. Uh, and I offer these words provisionally and carefully and invite you to weigh them as you weigh your own hearts and our own collective responses. <clears throat> well, we're in the season of harvest at the moment. Uh, we had some harvest hymns last week and we had our harvest meal uh, 10 days ago. And it's no accident that our reading from the lectionary for this week uh, is from the book of Ruth, which is, of course, a story set at harvest time, with most of it taking place either out there in the fields of the harvest or uh, rather notoriously for one key scene on the threshing floor of uh, Boaz's farm. Uh, we don't get that in today's reading, but if you don't know the story, it's worth reading on. It, it's a compelling, challenging and controversial book, this book of Ruth. It raises profound themes for us, themes of ethnicity, themes of belonging, themes of sexuality and gender and family values. They're all there. And a 20-minute sermon can't really do justice to this story, which does repay deeper study. But I hope that I can raise for us this morning some interesting issues for us to consider as we spend a bit of time today with Ruth and Naomi and some of the other characters in this ancient text and see if we can hear the whisper of the Spirit speaking to our spirits through this. I think in many ways this story is as contemporary as it is ancient, as relevant as it is archaic. It speaks to us from a world far, far removed from our own world, but it speaks to the human condition, which is unchanging. And it does so in ways that I think resonate down the millennia to the culture wars and the actual wars of our own time. So let's recap for a moment. In our reading today, Ruth the Moabite makes a profound series of promises of belonging to Naomi, her Judahite, her Jewish, uh, from the tribe of Judah, mother-in-law, even vowing unspoken curses on herself if she fails to keep her promises. 
The thing is, we need to understand that Moabites and Judahites were not natural friends for most of their existence. There is a deep ethnic tension here in this story. And clearly, Naomi's son had transgressed some fairly serious social boundaries when he had gone outside of his own Judah tribe to marry the Moabite, Moabitess Ruth and take her into the family. And then Ruth herself continues this pattern of making commitments across boundaries when she binds herself to her mother-in-law after the death of her husband. The extraordinariness of Ruth's action is highlighted by her sister-in-law Orpah's response. Uh, Orpah has also found herself widowed. Um, and although Orpah is obviously very fond of Naomi, her instinctive reaction is, like Ruth, to remain with her. In the end, the overriding boundaries of geography and ethnicity lead Orpah to return back to her family and tribe of origin. So here we've got Naomi. She's lost her husband. She's now lost both of her sons. This is a world of famine and sickness and bereavement and conflict and division. But as this story tells us, it's also a world of love and hope and faith. In other words, it, it is our world. And it's worth paying attention to the geography here. In any story set in uh, the, the Middle East, you need to pay attention to geography because most of the wars and most of the conflicts from ancient times down to the present day are about where you draw your boundaries on the map. And this is a story that begins in Ruth's homeland of Moab, which is uh, across the Jordan from what will become Israel. Uh, these days, we describe Moab as the southern area of the country of Jordan, bordering the eastern shore of the Dead Sea. And Ruth's story is deeply rooted in movement across geographical, ethnic, and ideological boundaries. Uh, if you were here last week in our sermon um, on the Ten Commandments, we stood with Moses as he gave the sermons of Deuteronomy, which include the reiteration of the Ten Commandments. That took place in the land of Moab. And he delivered the Ten Commandments to the gathered Israelites on the shores of the River Jordan uh, at the end of their wilderness wanderings. And we saw last week as, uh, as Israel prepared to invade ancient Palestine, to occupy the lands that they believed God had promised to them, we saw then that the Ten Commandments called them to these twin pillars of faithful living, love of God and love of neighbour. Famously, of course, Moses himself never made it over the Jordan into the Promised Land. He died and was buried there in Moab in the land of Ruth's family leaving the occupation to his successor, Joshua. And it's in this context of a region bearing the legacy and scars of violence and occupation, with famine forcing people to make choices about where they will turn for survival, with people movement taking place. It's there that Ruth, after the death of her husband, makes her vows of belonging to her mother-in-law. Unlike Orpah, Ruth decides to throw in her lot with a woman from a different culture 
and a different country. This well-known tale, which I remember reading in children's Bibles, is a story about a non-Israelite woman becoming, if you like, the defining model of what it means for faith, loyalty and life within the Jewish and Christian stories. Ruth is held up as, as an exemplar in both these faith traditions of what it is to be a faithful, loyal, God-loving person. And I think we need to hear the message of Ruth very clearly in our world today, and we'll come to that in a moment. But first, there's just one more little thing I want to unpick for us, and that's for us to think about uh, the moment when this story is set, and then the time when the book telling that story is actually written. Sometimes I find that when people start doing biblical studies, it can take a little while to realize that most of the biblical books were not written at the time of the events that they're narrating. Sometimes it's just a few decades later. So, you know, with the Gospels, they're 30, 40, 50, 60 years after the time of Jesus. But sometimes it's many centuries, maybe nearly a millennia, as with the book of Ruth. One way of visualizing this is to remember that when the Jewish scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, when they're ordered in a synagogue, they have a different ordering to the one we're familiar with. I mean, we know, you know I, do you know I can do all the books of the Bible in one breath in order? I'm not going to do it for you now, but I, I, maybe I'll do it as a party trick one day. But, you know, our ordering, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, Samuel, Samuel, Kings, Kings, Chronicles, Chronicles, we could go on. Um, our ordering is a Christian ordering. The Jews don't have that order. They have the same books, but they order them differently. Um, and this is because the Old Testament, as we call it, the Christian version ordering, uses an order that arranges these texts in such a way as to build up to the Christian conviction that God is supremely revealed in the life and person of Jesus. But the Jews, if you go to a synagogue yesterday and you look at how they arrange their scrolls, they still follow their ancient ordering. They put the law first, then the books of the prophets, and then finally the books of the writings. And the book of Ruth, they, the Jews would put as part of this third division, this, the books of the writings. And like most of these writings, the book of Ruth was written down and produced in what we now call the Second Temple period. This is the time after the return of the Jews from the Babylonian exile. The First Temple period, built by Solomon, destroyed by the Babylonians. The Second Temple period is after the Babylonian exile. They return to the land and rebuild the temple. And the Second Temple period goes right the way up until after the time of Jesus, when it's destroyed by the Romans. So the Book of Ruth is written in a context of the exiles from Babylon returning back to their homeland that their ancestors had left a couple of generations earlier under the whip of the Babylonians. And so the book of Ruth is written in the time of uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, a time when Jews who had been exiled to Babylon were being allowed to return back to their ancient homeland. So whilst the story the book of Ruth is telling is set many, many centuries earlier, not only before the Babylonian exile, but before the building of the first temple, before the time of even King David, it, it's set right back in the time of the judges. 
It is, in fact, a story that's written down quite late in the day. And so the concerns of this story reflect the time it was written, and we need to get a handle on this. So the concerns of the Book of Ruth are the concerns of the post-exilic community of Jews returning to the land of Israel, trying to work out how they should relate to their distant cousins who had remained in the land. Because when the Babylonians exiled the Jews, they didn't take all of them. They took the ruling elite, they took the literate, but, you know, if you were just a farmer, you were left in the land and you carried on farming your land and you just paid your taxes to the Babylonians and the new overlords. And in actual fact, the Babylonians had imported some new people into the land in order to, uh, to administer it. And some of those had intermarried. So when, when the Jews who had been in Babylon come back into the land, they've got their distant cousins already there. This is an empty land. They come in and find it's already occupied. And there's this real question of how are the returning Jews going to relate to the people who considered themselves the rightful occupants of that land? And so the question that arises is the question of intermarriage. Could those coming back from Babylon intermarry with the people who had remained in the land, or should those who had remained in the land now be considered a bit like Gentiles, no longer Jewish enough to be intermarried with? It's a question of racial purity, religious purity. It's very contemporary. <laughs> and in this specific historical context, you've got two different voices. You've got Ezra going full xenophobe. So if you read the book of Ezra, it does not make easy reading. He's arguing racial purity, religious purity. The exiles must be the only people who can be considered pure enough to be Jewish. And those who remain in the land should not be intermarried with. And if anybody has intermarried with them, Ezra says, we should put their wives away, send them away, break up the families. No mixed marriages here. And then somebody else tells the story of Ruth. And what does Ruth do? Well, Ruth is a Moabite, a Gentile. And Ruth marries a Jewish man. And then when he dies, she binds herself to a Jewish woman. And actually goes on within the framework of the story to become an ancestor of the great King David. This is a story that is saying, Judaism does not have to be exclusive. It can be inclusive. What's being argued about here is the nature of what it means to be the people of God. And all of this other stuff gets kind of dragged into it. The book of Ruth is in many ways, I think, a counter-testimony to the ideologies of exclusivism. It's reminding the post-exilic community of the faithful outsider women in Israel's story. So it, it recalls not only Ruth the Moabite, but also in chapter 4 it mentions Tamar the Canaanite, who become, became the matriarch of the royal tribe of Judah, to which Naomi's family belongs. So, let's recap. Naomi, the widow... More than a widow, she's lost her sons. She's bereft of males to support her. It's a patriarchal world. This is a catastrophe for a woman. Then 
and now widows symbolise bereavement, poverty and dependence and are often without adequate means to live. Ruth and Naomi, two widows, one older, one a younger Moabite. It's a dangerous time. The book of Judges describes that time and says in that period all the people did what was right in their own eyes. Naomi would have been at great risk as an older woman with no male dependents returning back to the land. But Ruth stays with her. In fact, Ruth clings to Naomi like glue and promises six things. She says to Naomi, they will journey together, they will live together, they will share a common people, they will share a common God, they will die in the same place and they will be buried in the same tomb. And these promises that Ruth makes to Naomi are of course an echo of the marriage vows that she would have made to her now deceased husband. And the fact that she speaks them to her mother-in-law is profound. In doing so, she is transgressing not only ethnic, geographical and religious boundaries, but in binding herself to Naomi, she is also transgressing gender boundaries. It's no surprise that in our contemporary context, these promises made by Ruth often feature as a Bible reading in marriage vows made at same-sex marriages between two women. These two ancient women join their families and their lives to the extent that when later in the story Ruth has uh, a child to, to Boaz, who by that point she's married, um, she takes that child and she gives it to Naomi and all the women of the neighborhood say together, chapter 4 verse 17, a son has been born to Naomi. Ruth's child is Naomi's child. I think the lesson for us here is that families are complex and they can transcend boundaries, boundaries of geography, boundaries of ethnicity, boundaries of gender and boundaries of sexuality. We may not realise how much of an outsider Ruth really was to the early audiences of this drama, but Israel's origin story for the country of Moab is pretty brutal. Genesis 19 tells us that the nations of Moab and Ammon were the descendants of Lot's incestuous relationship with his daughters. This is not an auspicious beginning. Throughout much of their history, Moab was Israel's enemy. The legal ruling against Moab and Ammon in the book of Deuteronomy says uh, that no Ammonite or Moabite should be admitted to the, the assembly of the Lord even to the tenth generation. This is a world of profound hatred between two people groups that goes back generations. So when Ruth the Moabite eventually marries Boaz later in the story, he's a Jewish kinsman of Naomi's dead husband, all the people at the gate say, this is chapter 4, we are witnesses, may the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, and through the children the Lord will give you by this young woman, may your house be like the house of Perez whom Tamar bore to Judah. It's pointing to that other outsider, Tamar the Canaanite, 
who had to pretend to be a prostitute in order to bear children. And after Ruth does give birth to Obed, all the women affirm, as we've seen, that Naomi is no longer childless. It actually says, Obed, that's uh, Ruth's son, shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age, for your daughter-in-law who loves you is more to you than seven sons, and she has borne him. Ruth is worth more to Naomi than seven sons would have been. This is really messing with the gender expectations of ancient Israel, and this is one of their stories. Throughout scripture, the perfect family had seven sons and three daughters, and yet this Moabite foreigner is worth more to Naomi than seven Jewish sons. I said it at the beginning, this is a controversial book. It intentionally questions the boundaries and expectations that people construct, boundaries of ethnicity, religion, gender, and family. It's a story that is as contemporary as it is ancient, and it speaks also, I believe, to our world of complex families and geopolitical tension, not least in the lands that this story is set in. It's a story that reminded the people of God of the Second Temple people, Second Temple period as they returned from exile, that their great King David and all the kings of Judah since were descended from a foreigner, from a Moabite woman. And that therefore women who joined the people of God should not be expelled. It's an argument against expelling the intermarriage women. Unlike many other Old and New Testament passages, it shows us that loyalty and faithfulness are the markers of God's people, not biology, genetics, culture or history. It's a story that speaks to the culture wars of our society and our faith communities as Christians in this country continue to tear each other apart over issues of sexuality and the meaning of marriage over the boundaries that are necessary for belonging, we need to hear the challenge of Ruth that such boundaries are meaningless in God's eyes. And in a world of war, particularly these last days, renewed war in the land of Israel and Palestine, we need also to be praying for a world where the boundaries of geography, ethnicity and religion are challenged by an overarching faith in a God who values those on both sides of the lines that we draw in the sand. So to conclude, I'm gonna let somebody else speak. I'm just gonna read them. I was reading an article this week by Naomi Klein. She's an author and left-wing activist. She comes from a Jewish family. And she reflects on the current conflict between Hamas and Israel. And I'm gonna end with her words, but I. I think her words reflect something of the spirit of the book of Ruth. So what follows is Naomi Klein. She says, for Zionist believers, and I'm not one of them, Jew hatred is the central rationale for why Israel must exist as a nuclear armed fortress. Within this worldview, anti-Semitism is cast as a primordial force that cannot be weakened or confronted. The world will always turn away from us in our hour of need, Zionism tells us, just as it did at the Holocaust. Which is why force alone is presented as the only conceivable response to any and all threats. The Israeli state's current murderous levelling of Gaza is the latest unspeakably horrific manifestation of this ideology and there will be more in the coming days. 
The responsibility for these crimes of collective punishment rests solely with their perpetrators and their financial and military backers abroad. But we all have to figure out how to make it stop. How do we confront this violent ideology? For one thing, we can recognize that when Israeli Jews are killed in their homes, and it is celebrated by people who claim to be anti-racist and anti-fascist, that is experienced as anti-Semitism by a great many Jews. And anti-Semitism, beside being hateful, is the rocket fuel of militant Zionism. But what could lessen its power, drain it of some of that fuel? True solidarity. Humanism that unites people across ethnic and religious lines. Fierce opposition to all forms of identity-based hatred, including anti-Semitism. An international left rooted in values that side with the child over the gun every single time, no matter whose gun and no matter whose child. A left that is unshakably morally consistent and does not mistake that consistency with moral equivalency between occupier and occupied and love. She concludes, it's certainly worth a try. In these difficult times, I'd like to be part of that. We'll reflect for a moment on that. And uh, while we do so, um, our panel will gather. We have Jean-Marc here in the church. And remembering our first hymn, in Christ there is no east nor west, uh, we have Tommaso, who's in Germany, and on a live link. As Simon ended with those those words from uh, Naomi Kleiner, I thought, oh dear, how do we get up and follow that? What can we say in these difficult situations? Um, and that's why we have a panel, and I'm going to let them say it first of all, but um, these are important things. When this text was set and when Simon started thinking about it, nothing was going on in the Middle East particularly, nothing that's going on now. And, and yet we are in a, the days we're in, and, and therefore we must consider these things in the light of what is going on and, and, and our response to it. So, um, uh, perhaps Jean-Marc, I wonder if you can offer some thoughts first. So, I, uh, I found this to be a very uh, moving story and indeed a very fitting one for the times we're in. Um, it is, I think, a testimony to simple grassroots action in a very, in, in, in an environment that has all the complexities. We have two people that actually make it simple and act, Ruth acting out of perhaps a duty of care perhaps certainly a sense of loyalty but acting also with sheer love and doing that going back to what unites us which is true humanity despite all the conventions despite all the norms we're just, she's just breaching that gap. And, you know, in the absence of 
if we trans transpose it in nowadays in the absence of you know big noise uh, debate on social media everybody expressing an opinion no these are two people just getting on with it and, and leading by example contrast that with the violence the noise and the fury of this week and beyond the firm and unconditional condemnation of this terrorist attack it is very clear that we will have to move on and find the leaders but also the people who are able to get out of their own narratives that they are prisoners of get out of the echo chambers of all the extreme views that we hear about this region and what we're going to need are more Ruth and more Naomi's reaching out to each other and acting from the bottom up with true you know grassroots love and attempt to live together and build a better world thank you thank you that's helpful um tomaso i wonder if you can share some thoughts with us yeah um i mean simon's sermon made me uh, reflect on the importance of personal bonds and how faith can help uh, inform and sustain them i mean whenever we are confronted with tragic and morally challenging events uh, such as the ongoing crisis in Palestine it's easy to forget in my view that ultimately the very possibility of peace hinges on our ability to develop meaningful ties with other human beings beyond our home tribe such as the, the ones that Oath manages to establish and acknowledging that fundamental truth should in my view take precedence over any disagreement we may have in assessing the current political situation uh, I want to be honest um, my take on Zionism is very different from Naomi Klein's and I'm probably more sympathetic towards it than other liberal Protestants are it's a fact and nevertheless whatever our differences in family history nationality or ideological orientation I feel that the recognition of the inherent value of the inherent value of engaging with other people in building peace is what brings us together in a church context uh, in fact I'm afraid uh, that one of the most disastrous consequences of war is that individuals who have been exposed to hatred to violence for a long time tend to overlook the transformative power of human relationships and since we are lucky enough to live in a parts of the world where those levels of animosity and antagonism and brutality 
are unknown, or at least are not endemic, I hope that as Christians uh, we will be able to stand firm until the end in bearing witness to a different way of living. In 1939, Bertolt Brecht, in one of his poems, said the following. In the dark times, will there also be singing? Yes, there will also be singing about the dark times. Dear Lord, as we are together for these prayers of intercession, all we can think about are dark times. Let us acknowledge our sorrow, distress, and unanswered questions in the midst of the terrible news of terror attacks, wars, never-ending cycles of hatred and violence, resulting in the killing of so many innocent people in Israel, in Palestine, in Ukraine, and in so many other places in the world. In our despair, we turn to you, O Lord. We pray for all the people and families mourning the loss of loved ones, for all those who lost everything or are being displaced because of human-inflicted violence or natural disasters as we saw in Morocco, Libya, or Afghanistan. And we think, too, closer to home about all those who live in the streets or struggle to find a home as winter is fast approaching. We recommend them all to you, as you are the shepherd and know each one of us. May we, too, name in our hearts people that are in need of your love and consolation. We pray for the leaders of all countries that their decisions be guided by wisdom and moderation and not by passion and revenge, by a true desire to make lives better for all. We pray for all the people committed to create path for peace and reconciliation, engaged in forging links and building bridges so that we can live together with our differences in a world that offers justice for all. As we despair, we want to believe that division and conflict can be healed, that people can be reunited, that the possibility of a better world for all exists. May we too, O oh Lord, be guided by you and contribute to making this a reality in our everyday life, individually and as a church. Like Ruth and Naomi, may we reach outside of our comfort zone and get to know and care for people who are different, because in there lies the richness of our world and of your love 
Dear Lord, give us the courage to break barriers and speak up, the strength, energy and patience to build bridges and fight for justice, and the love and compassion to be truly welcoming and open to others. In the dark times, will they also be singing? Yes, O oh Lord, you show us the light and the way, songs of love, hope and action. In the name of Jesus, Amen. Almighty God, go on before us. Loving Shepherd, gently lead us. Abiding Spirit, bring us safely and faithfully through the coming days and forevermore. Amen.